Orphan Black, the next chapter, is back for season two, and it's bigger than ever. The official continuation of the hit TV show stars Emmy Award-winning actress Tatiana Maslany as all of the clones. And this season, she's joined by original TV show cast members Jordan Gavaris as Felix, Evelyn Brochu as Delphine, and Christian Brune as Donnie. Season two picks up where season one left off with, spoiler alert, the secret of the clones finally exposed to the general public. Hundreds of previously unaware clones grapple with the news that they are part of a massive military science experiment. Meanwhile, anti-clone protesters fight to have the clones' rights restricted. Caught in the middle, the Sestras want peace, and when an unforeseen threat turns their world upside down, they must join forces with former enemies to protect the ones they love. Orphan Black, the next chapter, is available right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Be sure to listen and subscribe, or visit realm.fm for more information. Some audio in this episode may be disturbing. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to episode six of The Truth About True Crime, a podcast series looking at some of the most shocking crimes of our lifetimes through a whole new lens. I'm your host, Amanda Knox. When are the problems? When is this whole thing going to end? What's going to happen here in a matter of a few minutes? One of those people on that plane is going to shoot the pilot. Why he chose to do what he did, I'll, I don't know if I'll ever understand that. To go even deeper, watch the four-part docuseries Jonestown, Terror in the Jungle, currently streaming on Sundance Now. Download the app or visit SundanceNow.com and start watching. Here with me today via Skype, we have Jeff Gwynn, author of The Road to Jonestown and executive producer of the docuseries Jonestown, Terror in the Jungle, Jordan Vilches, a former member of the People's Temple, and Grace Stowen, who defected from People's Temple in 1976. Today, we're going to be talking about the day that everyone thinks about when they think about Jonestown. Previously, we talked about how there was a custody battle happening between Jones and the rest of the world over the souls of his congregants, over their lives and their welfare. And on the one hand, we had Jones, who believed in himself, believed in his vision, and believed in his control. And on the other hand, we had concerned relatives of family members of the People's Temple. We had courageous People's Temple defectors like Grace, speaking out about the truth of what was going on. And in the middle of all of this, we had Congressman Leo Ryan, who decided to make a trip down to Jonestown to investigate the alleged human rights violations on behalf of the concerned relatives back in the States. I wanted to ask all of you, before Ryan's visit, what was the atmosphere like at Jonestown? How was everyone feeling? 
What was the morale like? I was in Georgetown at the time, but I was in Jonestown just days before. And I think that people were really very tired and also wanting to have hope, just putting everything into holding on to this idea of being united in whatever was coming our way because there was a lot of talk about threat. Attention, attention. Every member of the community must come to the pavilion immediately. People's helpers must go around and escort them into the pavilion. We may have an invasion, not with guns, but with one hostile racist congressman. Now, whether they'll get to Georgetown, I do not know. But we are to see that we sign that you do not want to see any relative accompanied with any congressman. You do not want to see any relative that you have not requested to see and you will determine the time and the place that you see your relative. Thank you very much. But I think that underneath it all, there was a feeling of perhaps bewilderment or just a feeling like, when are the problems? When is this whole thing gonna end? Mm. Just think that people were very tired. Yeah. Well, especially since Jonestown was supposed to be this place of a new beginning, right? And there had always been enemies, but suddenly you were in the wilderness and you were isolated and surrounded. You had the voice of Jim Jones telling you you were under siege. Do you remember, did you ever get a chance to meet Congressman Ryan in Georgetown on his way through? I did not meet him as the congressman and company were going in to Jonestown. I was on that last boat that had folks that had gone into Georgetown. Mm. So we passed one another. Mm. Grace, did you see Leo Ryan in Georgetown? Yes, I went with Congressman Ryan. In fact, Deborah Layton and I were flown to Washington. Um, he wanted us to meet with the State Department, and we met with 17 members of the State Department before we left. And so, actually, I left from D.C. with Congressman Ryan, Jackie Spear, and we met up with everybody, I believe, either in New York or something, and then we all went down together with the NBC crew and the other concerned relatives. What were they like when they talked to you? And the State Department? Yeah, or, or Leo Ryan and, and the crew, all of you down in Georgetown, what was their attitude? So Deborah Layton and I did an exit interview at San Francisco airport with the NBC crew, Bob Brown and Don Harris and them. So when we're doing the exit interview, I would always bring up to them that there was a possibility that they could lose their lives on this whatever you would call it, mission, whatever. Mm -hmm. And every time I would bring that up, the cameras would be shut off and I was told they didn't want us to talk about it. Really? So I said, okay, whatever. And they'd ask us questions. I just remember them never wanting to speak about how they could lose their lives. But at the end, when they were packing up and the cameras were off, they asked me, why do you keep bringing this up? And I said, well, because I know what Jim is capable of and I know it's a possibility and I'm going there with that knowledge and I want you to go there with that knowledge. And they just kind of, you know, blew me off and said, well, 
you know, we've been to Vietnam, we've been to Mexico, we've been in jail, we've been shot at. They just really didn't, they didn't get it. They didn't hear it. They're planning some kind of violent action against us. An entry into our project by force because it has been discussed by this disreputable fascist congressman, Orion. He is so far right, you can call him nothing but fascist. Stone is also in the number, naturally, and grace. They're now as high in their salutations for fascism as they once were in their devotion to socialism. And so, Deborah and I went to D.C. We went with 17 members of the State Department, and I'll never forget. We each got up and spoke, and I stood up and said that I had signed blank pieces of paper, that I'd signed papers that I molested my son. And one of them said, well, I would have never done that. And I said, you know, that's really big of you to say that. I said, try saying that in front of a group of, what, 35, 40 people. I said, if you didn't sign it, Jim or someone would say, oh, are you thinking about leaving us? Do we need to be concerned about you? Mm -hmm. um, so you never were forthright in that regard. But the way they talked to Congressman Mayan, they said, you know, mind your P's and Q's, behave yourself. It was very, to me, very condescending. Hmm. I guess I wanted to go back just a little bit to ask, how did you know just how dangerous Jim Jones was? You know, I think it was, you know, just like a gut feeling. I'll never forget when I was packing to go, I'll never forget this. I said to my husband, I said, oh my God. And he goes, what? And I go, Jim's gonna kill all of us. And my husband said, what did you say? And when I repeated it, I said, he's gonna kill all those people. And he goes, why are you saying that? It was just a gut feeling. I think I just knew subconsciously what Jim was capable of. You had spent years alongside this person, so I mean, you get to know someone after a while. And you know, when I left, we were always told that we would be killed if we ever left. Mm. I remember one day I was sitting in a car and I thought, oh my God, I'm gonna be 65 years old and still in this situation. And we were always told that we would be killed if we left. And I said, you know what? I'm, I decided to leave because I decided that I would rather be dead than to live the rest of my life like this. I mean, I thought it was beautiful, the concept, not that it was really happening, mm -hmm. but you know, his concepts and everything and what we believed in and everything, but I was just tired of it. It was just, it, it just, it wasn't right. It just wasn't right. At this point, Jim Jones has your son, John Victor, and you're working with the concerned relatives. You obviously wanted your son back, but was it also more than that? Did you want Jonestown to dissolve and People's Temple to end? Or could you imagine a future where people who wanted to leave could leave and the People's Temple could still exist? You know, for me, you know, I thought that People's Temple potentially was a really good place. It just wasn't for me. I just wanted my son. Hmm. If people wanted to stay and wanted to continue, God bless them. But my whole goal was to get my son and to move on. And I kind of felt different in that I never really wanted to join People's Temple. Tim asked me to marry him, Tim Stone. 
And he said one day to Jim, he said, Jim, I'll give you one year of my life. And he looked at me and he said, is that all right with you? And I said, I can do anything for one year. Um, I had no intention of ever giving up my whole life. I came from a very simple life and never had much of anything culturally, education-wise or anything. And so for me to join a situation like this and to give your all and to give up everything, that was kind of hard for me to want to do that. I really never had any intention to do that. My plan was one year and then I was going to move on. So to go and confront him again, like to go all the way down to Guyana and to Georgetown in hopes of confronting him and taking back your son. What was driving you? I just wanted my son back. And, you know, I said to the reporters, I said, look, I know there's a possibility that I can get killed. I'm going down there with knowledge. Hmm. I just wanted my son back and I was willing to lose my life to do it. So the congressman and the NBC crew are finally let into Jonestown. They move about the grounds. They speak with the settlers. They're learning what it's like to live there. And they're looking for evidence that these people are captive in some way, that they're being held hostage. And they don't find it. The people who Leo Ryan speaks to, they seem happy, fulfilled, like they really believe they're in paradise. But later that evening, when everyone is gathered under the pavilion for dinner and a celebration, someone passes a note to the NBC reporter Don Harris, asking for help. Take us with you. But they can't leave until the next morning. So Congressman Ryan gives a speech to Jim Jones and the People's Temple that night. This is a congressional inquiry. I think that all of you know that I'm here to find out more about uh, questions that have been raised about your operation here. I can tell you right now that from the few conversations I've had with some of the folks here already this evening, that uh, whatever the comments are, there are some people here who believe that this is the best thing that ever happened to them in their whole life. Jeff, from your research of that Friday night at the pavilion, what did you learn? There's something I never had the chance to ask either Jordan or Grace, and I'd like to now if that's okay. Yeah. Jordan, you're back in Georgetown that night, and Grace, you're at the hotel in Georgetown too. Right. What kind of message on Friday night did either of you hear about how things were going in Jonestown? Was there any communication, say, back to the house, to you folks, Jordan, that everything's okay? Or did somebody at the hotel maybe at least pass word to you, Grace, that things so far are all right? We kept hearing that there were delays. They were supposed to be back at one time and then it got delayed. And we were waiting in the uh, Pegasus Hotel. We were in the lobby. And then eventually the manager came to us and said, we want to speak to you. And they spoke to us one at a time. They took us into their office and they said for our safety that we really needed to stay in the hotel. They didn't tell us much. Then we all ended up in one person's room so that the security could be easier for them because they had security guards out in our room. They came in, they asked, who's gonna be your spokesperson? And it was Stephen Katsaras we elected to have. He left the room, he came back, and he was the one that told us that Congressman Ryan had been shot and was possibly dead.
How very much I've loved you. How very much I've tried my best to give you the good life. But in spite of all of that I've tried, a handful of our people have made our life impossible. There's no way to detach ourselves from what's happened today. You can't take off with people's children without expecting a violent reaction. The world, the kingdom, suffers violence, and the violence shall take it by force. I want to go back to the morning of November 18th, the day after Congressman Ryan's speech. Don Harris had requested an interview with Jim Jones, where he revealed to Jim that someone had slipped him a note saying they wanted to leave. And it seems like this was the defining turning point, where Jones became more hostile. He quickly prompts all of the unwanted guests to leave, and then several more Temple members choose to defect and leave too. And the air is crackling. So as Leo Ryan and the handful of settlers are about to leave, one of Jones's loyal followers tries to kill the congressman. He puts a knife to his throat. Other settlers rush in and save Ryan in that moment, and the violence is diffused. But now they know they're not safe. They have to get to the airport at Port Kaituma. What's going to happen here in a matter of a few minutes is that one of those people on that plane is going to shoot the pilot. I know that. They're going to shoot that pilot, and down comes that plane into the jungle. And we had better not have any of our children left when it's over, because they'll parachute in here on us. I'm telling you, just as plain as I know how to tell you, I've never lied to you. I never have lied to you. So my opinion is that we be kind to children and be kind to seniors and take the portion like they used to take in ancient Greece and step over quietly because we are not committing suicide. It's a revolutionary act. We can't go back. They won't leave us alone. They're now going back to tell more lies, which means more congressmen. And there's no way, no way we can survive. Anyone that has any dissenting opinion, please speak. Yes, Christine. Is it too late for Russia? Here's why it's too late for Russia. They killed. They started to kill. That's why it makes it too late for Russia. Otherwise, I'd said, Russia, you bet your life. But to me, death is not, and death is not a fearful thing. It's living this treachery. I've never seen people take the law and do in their own hands and provoke us and try to purposely agitate murder of children. There's no, Christine, it's just not, it's not worth living like this. Not worth living like this. I think that there were too few who left for 1,200 people to give them their lives for those people that left. You know how many left? Ooh, 20 odd. That's, that's a small... 20 odd. 20 odd. As long as there's life, there's hope. That's my faith. Well, some, everybody dies. Someplace that hope runs out because everybody dies. I haven't seen anybody yet didn't die. And I like to choose my own kind of death for a change. I'm tired of being tormented to hell. That's what I'm tired of. 1,200 people's lives in my hands, and I certainly don't want your life in my hand. But I'm going to tell you, Christine, without me, life has no meaning. 
I'm the best friend you'll ever have. The way that I heard about what was happening was I was there at the house in Georgetown and Sharon, also known as Linda Amos, was on the radio. There was constant uh, radio contact between the states, Georgetown and Jonestown. And that afternoon, Sharon was on the radio and she ran out of the radio room, grabbed Leanne, grabbed her two smaller children and whizzed by with them and said to me and those who were around that everyone in Jonestown was killing themselves and that we were to do the same thing. It was just that quick. Just out of nowhere, you get a, you get the word and, ugh. Yeah, and what I know in Jonestown, there was a lot of people enforcing what was happening and, and there was nothing like that going on in, in Georgetown at all. But still, I know Sharon actually ended up killing her three children and herself after that moment you saw her in Georgetown. And what about Jonestown? When did you think it was too late for the people there? Well, right after that, it was a whole lot of confusion. The police were coming and we were being taken down for interrogation at the police department over and over and over again. The police there, the country, they were trying to figure out what was going on. And as the days went by, we were held under house arrest. And at first it wasn't clear if there were any survivors. And as the days wore on, I think by the end of that week, it was pretty clear that everyone was dead. Congressman's dead, the Congressman's aide's dead, many of our traitors are dead, they're all laying out there dead. Please get us some medication. It's simple, it's simple, there's no convulsions with it, it's just simple, just please get it. Before it's too late, the GDF will be here, I tell you, get moving, get moving, get moving. Don't be afraid to die. If, you, if these people land out here, they'll, they'll torture some of our children here. They'll torture our people. They'll torture our seniors. We cannot have this. We tried to find a new beginning, but it's too late. You can't separate yourself from your brother and your sister. No way I'm going to do it. I, I refuse. I don't know who fired the shot. I don't know who killed the congressman. But as far as I'm concerned, I killed him. You understand what I'm saying? I killed him. We're trying. If everybody will relax, the best thing you do to relax and you have no problem. You'll have no problem with the thing if you just relax. Keep your emotions down. Keep your emotions down. Children, it will not hurt if you'll be if you'll be quiet. If you'll be quiet. I tell you, I don't care how many screams you hear, I don't care how many anguish cries. Death is a million times preferable to 10 more days of this life. If you knew what was ahead of you, if you knew what was ahead of you, you'd be glad to be stepping over tonight. If you'll quit telling them they're dying, if you adults will stop some of this nonsense, adults, I call on you to stop this nonsense. I call on you to quit exciting your children when all they're doing is going to quiet rest. No, no sorrow that it's all over. I'm glad it's over. All right, they just not fall into the hands of the enemy. Hurry, my children. The vat, the vat, where's the vat? With the green sea? Right here, so the adults can begin. 
take our life from us. We laid it down. We got tired. We didn't commit suicide. We committed an act of revolutionary suicide protesting the conditions of an inhumane world. Grace, could you believe that the people you knew and loved who were there could be gone? Because your son was there even. Right. But see, at that point, we didn't know the extent. Mm. We just knew that Congressman Ryan had been shot. That was all we were told. So in thought, I didn't even go there and thought about everybody else being killed. And then the next thing that happened was the phone started ringing, and it was the families of the reporters calling us, asking about their loved ones. Mm. If we knew if they were alive or stuff like that. I, yeah, I, but we were in shock. Mm -hmm. And how we found out about the numbers, we left the country. My brother-in-law got a plane to come and take us out. And they dropped us off in Puerto Rico because they'd been flying too many hours. We spent the night there in Puerto Rico and we got on a plane that stopped three different times, Florida and Texas, I don't know what. People came on with the newspapers and each city, the papers had, the numbers of people had increased. Oh. that were being reported. And I have to say, I think we were just, we were in shock. How long did you hold out hope for your son? Days, because we hadn't heard specifically. And then some of the press, like this one, they said, if you give us an interview, we'll let you know who's confirmed dead. And we oh. just shut the door on them. Oh my God, I'm so sorry. Yeah. Some people call this a mass suicide. Other people call it a mass murder. What do you guys call it? I call it a mass murder. I was working in San Francisco and I don't know, was it Stanley Clayton or Odell? One of those two eyewitnesses showed up at a company that I worked in years later and I recognized them and I said to him, because he was there, he, he was a witness. And I said, what happened? And I felt so badly because he kept stuttering and stammering. And, mm. and I finally said, you know what? I said, this is too heavy, don't plead. He goes, no, 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 I, I can do this, I can do this. He told me that the children were taken first. They were taken away and that a teenager had gotten loose. And he said he was shaking, but he went back because he wanted everybody to know that this was real. And I said, and, and he said, well, but if anything, when the people saw, cause he was convulsing and shaking, mm -hmm. he said, when the people saw him, they just froze with fear. So I say, I know it was a mass murder. I wouldn't doubt that some people wanted to, would you Jordan? I don't think anyone really wanted to. I don't think anyone really wants to die. I mean, we wanna, our propensity is to wanna live. <laughs> I think that there were people that resisted. I think that because of the way it happened, I think it was such a shocking thing that people, probably some, just went ahead and did it because nobody was in their right mind. There was a lot of fear. I think that there was probably people behind, maybe with guns or, or syringes. And so there was a threat as well. And so I think that ultimately, if you want to label it anything, it would be mass murder because of all of these factors. 
even if someone raised the glass to their own mouth. The thing that kind of bothers me about this story is that I feel like it's so easy for the rest of us, you know, the rest of us in society who either weren't alive at the time or who were and just weren't close to it, to go, only crazy people would do that. And that bothers me because I don't think it does justice to these people who were real people, who weren't crazy, who had come from all walks of life to do their best and be their best selves. The most heartbreaking thing almost that I heard in the four years that I worked on this book and talked to many folks who had been part of People's Temple, anyone who's gonna listen to this podcast who thinks telling a Kool-Aid joke is funny, I hope you'll remember this the next time before you do. Wonderful woman named Nell Smart, just one of the nicest people I've ever met in my life. And on that day in Jonestown, she not only lost all her four children, but her mother and her uncle. She had been a member of the temple, she'd left it. And a couple months before the tragedy, she flew to Guyana, went out to Jonestown because she wanted to see for herself if her children were all right. And she was there for a week and she saw that even though it wasn't for her, they seemed to be so happy and content. So she decided this is what they want. I have to let them do what they want. And she went home. And then of course, a couple months later, she gets the news and she said for a couple days, she sits in her apartment and she can't move. And she's thinking, I should have made them come with me. I could have done that. This is my fault. And she finally, after days, there's nothing to eat in the place. So she goes to the grocery store. And she's forcing herself to go pick up a couple items of food to bring home. And she gets in the checkout line. And there's a checker. And the man in front of her in the line takes out of his cart a package of Kool-Aid. And the checker looks at it and said, well, you better not drink that like those fools overseas. And she said the pain that she felt when she heard that and that all these years later, that hasn't changed, that people still laugh and they don't understand. That, yeah, that kind of like dismissive attitude, that sense of, God, I don't even know what to say. These were wonderful, wonderful people. I've written many books and I've had to interview lots of folks. This is the only book I've ever written where I came away feeling like I met at least a couple dozen people that I want to be friends with the rest of my life. These were not fools. These were people who fell prey to someone who understood how much they wanted to help make the world a better place and tried so hard to do it. You're talking about some of the smartest people, the most socially committed the most decent people. The fact that there are so many who are still willing to tell their stories and try to help people understand is amazing. I wouldn't have ever been brave enough. I've always felt that I met some of the finest people I think I'll ever meet in my whole life. I knew when I left that I would be instantly hated, that I would be instantly lose all these wonderful friends. But I, I have to say that I, I really truly felt that I've met some of the finest, and I'm not talking about intellectual, smart, just the finest people for who they were and nothing else. And it really made me sad because, you know, 
People's Temple could have really, we could have gone down in history. We could have been a group to reckon with. I mean, Jim Jones, he himself had the power and he had the people behind him. He could have been so great. Why he chose to do what he did, I don't know if I'll ever understand that. I'll never understand that. I think Jim Jones was full of contradictions. On the one hand, he encouraged people to do good things and be their best selves. And on the other hand, he manipulated and hurt people. I think that when we think of this story, maybe there's just too much focus on Jim Jones and not enough focus on the people who followed him. Because really, I think the force to be reckoned with in this story are the people. They are the ones who are truly lost in this story. That's all wrapped up in the charisma and chaos of Jim Jones. Jeff, Jordan, Grace, I want to thank you for spending time with me and opening up about your story. I know that it's hard, not only because it's the worst experience of your life, but also because everyone keeps asking you about it and asking you to explain yourself. I mean, I have also gone through that same experience of feeling like everywhere I go, I have to engage with everyone else's ideas about the worst experience that ever happened to me and how that is the defining aspect of my life. I hope that what we've done here together is shown how important your perspective is and how much more you are than what people think they know about Jonestown and what happened to you. So thank you for giving that to me and to everyone who's listening. I wanna thank everyone for listening, for giving these survivors the chance to tell their stories, to be more than the Kool-Aid joke. And the good news is, the story doesn't end here. In the next episode, Jeff, Jordan, Jim, and Grace are gonna talk about the aftermath of Jonestown. And we're gonna hear audio from the 40th anniversary memorial service in East Oakland, California. So please tune in. Find the truth about true crime on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode.